welcome. Welcome to being an adult. <laughs> Actually, this is the indie setup. My name is Sean Foster and we're here with Danielle Maz? Mars? Mars as in farce. Farce. Uh, mm. Like um, the play you did last year. Yes, which was in fact a farce. Mm. So mm. we're here uh, talking about, um, you know what, let's start with you, Danielle. Mm-hmm. Let's start with you and your artistic journey. Can you take us from the very beginning uh, to now? Great. Okay. Uh, so when I was a very small child, uh, I was big into reading, right? So I never really watched TV. I never mm-hmm. played video games, but I was really into books. And the only other thing I really enjoyed apart from reading books I started off with like my little golden books, yep. little storybooks, and then I graduated to Ina Blyton, etc. But the only other thing I liked to do apart from read was every morning I w- or every afternoon, whenever I came home from school, I would do what my mother called pacing. And I would go down to the side of the house. We had a really long strip in between our house and the neighbor's hedge. And for three hours-ish every day, I would walk up and down or pace this part of our property uh, talking to myself, which obviously was very disturbing for my yeah, mother. Yeah, it sounds disturbing. <laughs> but what I was doing was I was taking all the stories that I was reading and I was putting myself in them and oh, yeah. rewriting the stories. Uh, so because my mum thought I was a bit weird, and obviously this is a weird thing for a child to do, uh, she put me in drama classes. And obviously I thrived because it was just like pacing only with other kids and yeah. dress ups and you know a more normal kind of social environment and then all throughout high school I just kept doing it uh, it was the only thing um, that I sort of really flourished in the drama classes or the yeah, pacing drama classes weirdly um, pacing not so much I realized that was sort of like exercise and that's not really a thing <laughs> I'm into although I am a big walker I still hike a lot mm. um, so I would uh, just kept doing drama classes uh, I um didn't really think quite seriously about what I was going to do with my life. I had well this is okay this is a bit weird. A psychic told me when I was 16 that I would die at 20. Nice. Right? So obviously I was like, well, better make the most of those 4 years. Yep. Uh so I finished school thing I did best in was drama I got into a bachelor of arts and I also got into a bachelor of law at UWS and I was like well might as well do the theater thing because if I'm gonna die in like two years I may as well just like do the acting thing and the storytelling thing so I kept doing that dropped out of bachelor of arts went to drama school 20 comes still alive 21 comes still alive 22 comes still alive at that point so I've graduated I, well I sort of was <laughs> it was like I didn't really get a choice in the matter mm. and then I got in my head when I was about 22 that I wouldn't make it past 30 so I was like well I'll just keep making theatre um, because I don't know how to do anything else and there's not anything else I think I can do um, and here I am at 30 and somehow still alive and still making theatre so I guess for me I mean, obviously, there's more nuts and bolts to it, but artistically, it's something I've always loved doing. And there's a wonderful quote by um, <clears throat> Laurence Olivier, which is, without acting, I cannot breathe. And I think on a very unconscious level, um, I can expand that out from acting to 
theatre or art in the broader sense. Um, but I make, well, I tell stories and make theatre and opera and musical theatre because without it, I don't see a point to life. I think art is the very nexus of why we live, you know. I mean, you could substitute art for leisure or for culture, um, but a life uh, where we work or we do things because we need to survive and that there is no art or leisure or cultural pleasure to me is a very dull life. So my art is my work. And you would consider yourself an artist as like if you had to put a label on yourself? I think so. Um, I think given that I do, I work across so many different forms and fields. Um, For years I've been saying that I uh, am a practitioner. Mm Mm-hmm. And I sort of like that as well as a term because uh, practitioner implies that it's a a craft or a trade. Uh, And at the end of the day, making art is a job. And that doesn't mean that it's less fulfilling or I'm less passionate or creative, but to be an artist is also to be a tradesman or a craftsman. Um, So yeah, I would define myself and my work as an artist because I like the broadness of that. And I like that that doesn't tie me to one particular idea of what it is that I do. Yeah. So your um, work has spanned across a lot of different forms, um, Mm -hmm. mainly like live uh, Mm -hmm. performance stage, Mm -hmm. mostly. Yes. Not so much screen. No. Interestingly, I ran a video store for three years when I dropped out of university. As in a blockbuster? It was a civic video. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so a lesser form of a blockbuster. (laughs) And I think, I mean, I've always loved films. Um, Film is one of the things that I teach. Um, But I think as an artist, uh, it's sort of nice to have one art form that you don't want to make. Because I think if I was also working across screen, then I... I wouldn't have any art forms left. That to I, enjoy. Yeah. yeah. And I sort of like, I mean, what I teach in terms of film is how to deconstruct and appreciate a film. Um, I don't teach filmmaking. Um, I'm sort of not interested in the technical aspects of filmmaking, although mm-hmm. I have uh, used film in my work. But I sort of like the purity of, I remember those years of running a video store when I was at drama school where I could just come home and watch a film and yes that is a learning experience but there's also a real pleasure to that uh, and I sort of like having film and television as this is kind of sanctuary yeah. you know same thing with novels like I love reading but I would never want to write a novel so I like to kind of be very clear about mm. what I do and so yes. how I feel about renaissance sculpture not, yeah not particularly interested in making one but you no, know but love looking at exactly. them exactly yeah although never say never I was um offered a a project this morning which is all about visual art and I was like oh now I'm gonna have to go down that rabbit hole and I'm gonna have to learn everything about that field Mm. and now Picasso's gonna be ruined for me oh no it won't so (laughs) (laughs) it wasn't um Picasso ruined by Nanette um Hannah Gadsby's show Nanette yeah that was a dark day Mm. yeah I mean well this is the thing um I have this conversation often with students, particularly, um, because, you know, I teach in universities where students' brains are kind of waking up uh, to adulthood in the world, and uh, you hope. And um, one of the things we've been 
well, one of the things I've been talking about, and sometimes they listen and sometimes it's conversation and sometimes just a rant, but um, this idea of being able to separate the value of art from the artist, and I'm not saying we should separate um, an artist entirely from their work, but um, there is value uh, even in the works of people who have done unspeakably atrocious things. Because the problem I have with cancel culture is that it forces everything into a black and white area and I don't think art or life operates upon that binary. So, I mean, if I think about someone like Woody Allen, who within his personal life has allegedly, and I believe he has, done the most appalling, unimaginable things to people he cares about, presumably. Um... That's one thing. But then I also have to look at his body of work and Woody Allen's been a huge influence on the way that I write and the way that I think about storytelling, Um, which is not to say his films are perfect, but there's a huge amount of value I can take from those films. And so as an artist, it's my responsibility to go, I have to weigh up and have an opinion about the work and I have to weigh up and have an opinion about him as a human being as well. And I cannot separate the two, but the two can coexist. Mm. Um, if you think about it on the flip side, I think it's fascinating that we don't want to talk about things like Mahatma Gandhi and the fact that Gandhi, in his elderly age, used to sleep with his 13-year-old granddaughter in the bed next to him and would practice not getting an erection in order to achieve spiritual enlightenment. Pretty easy, I'd think, for an old man. Well, apparently it was a real struggle for him. Mm. But the fact that we're willing to overlook that because of the incredible things he did Mm. uh, for his country, I don't think one should cancel the other out, but I think we have to be able to look at both because if we just continually shut things down, then we're sort of not really learning. Yeah, it's more interesting if um, these figures are flawed as well, I think. Totally, because everything in life is flawed. And I would hate for someone to look at my body of work, which has happened, and to make really kind of grossly uneducated um, presumptions about who I am. Mm. The fact that I make a lot of work that's about gender and sexuality and people have made assumptions about my gender and sexuality as a result of my work, Mm -hmm. I think is problematic because I am to an extent separate from my work. I will never be totally separate, of course, but I would like for people to look at both rather than well, she gets her vagina out a lot on stage, so she must be a slut off stage. So perhaps that's my personal connection to things, but I think it's not about ignoring one thing or the other, but it's certainly not about um, going, well, we can never listen to or consume this art ever again. Yeah. I just don't think that's helpful. What was the most um, impactful piece of your own work on your own you know, personal life kind of journey thing that you made that then changed the way you thought about your practice? Oh, gosh, one piece of work. Um, it was probably uh, the work I made over in the UK, mm-hmm. my thesis uh, production, which was called Prototype Phase One. Uh, it was a form of theatre I'd never heard of, Prior to moving to the UK, it uh, was a mashup of uh, intermedial and virtual reality theatre with auto teatro. 
right. uh, which is a form of theatre where there is no, there are no actors and there are no audience. There are agents giving instructors instructions to audience members who then build a work for themselves. So it's a very niche form of uh, immersive theatre. But unlike most immersive theatre, the audience don't change the experience by participating. They build the experience. Uh and it was all inspired by video games and the notion of what it um, looking in digital culture. And so these were all things that I'd never heard of. Uh, so I was writing and performing and designing the sound for it, which was all things I'd done before. Mm-hmm. But as a performer, I was having to do things like screen acting and voiceover and puppetry and kinesthetic puppetry. And these are all things that I think I'm rubbish at. Um, but I think I think I think the thing that I found most liberating was that although I was working with someone who I'd never met prior to twelve months before me moving to the UK, I was working with a, a privileged white man of all people from New Zealand, which is not why I moved to the UK. But to work with someone uh, that I'd never had a long form relationship with artistically in a country where I barely knew anyone, in a school where nobody knew who I was or the work that I'd done. For me to have made a really good piece of work that was totally unlike anything I'd made and yet was the very represented the very core of who I am artistically was incredibly liberating. Because I got into a point where I was like, well, people only think of me as the girl who does this. And so to take all the things that I really value about my work and to put them in a context where I made a piece of work that was valued and that people enjoyed and that um, provoked and raised a lot of questions um, was really exciting. And it totally changed the way that I worked because I suddenly went, oh, I can make whoever I want because it's not like I have to, you know, um, take my clothes off or talk about sex in order for my work to be good. I did take my clothes off in that intermedial piece. but in a totally different context. And I was like, actually, there's a core of skills here which is true to who I am and it doesn't matter what context I put them in, that work will still be mine. So I found that very liberating and I think it's completely changed the work that I've made since. So you went to the UK to study, is that right? Yes. Mm. So I went to the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama, also known as the Royal Central School of Screech and Trauma. (laughs) Um, and I did a Masters of Advanced Theatre practice and the thing that is wonderful about that particular course um, is that it's about collaboration. It's about the art of how you work with other people and it's about the temperament of working with others to find new ways of making work, Mm -hmm. whereas most postgraduate education in the arts globally is about the development of skill. Uh, whereas this is, of course, about the de- development of methodology, um, which I found much more interesting as someone who likes to have skills in multiple areas. I wasn't really interested in specialising. Do you think that's something you can get in Australia or is it just uh, something you have to travel for? In terms of education, there is no course like that in Australia. Uh, there have been, there was one course that VCA used to run in animaturing. Uh, but that was more about the individual artist, is my understanding, uh, rather than the collaborative artist. Um, I think what was useful about going to the UK was the incredible amount of cross-cultural pollination. So we had 30 students in my course from about 
16 different countries and that's just not an experience you can have in yep. most Australian institutions. Um, and I think that definitely added to it. So you um, you said before you use a lot of um, feminist kind of themes, gender, mm-hmm. um, fluidity, and uh, you talk about that stuff a lot in your work. Mm. Um, where did that kind of stem from? Uh, I think I've always been a feminist. In fact, there is... Uh, evidence going all the way back to when I was 15 when uh, in year 10 uh, there was a student body who gave out awards and the award I got was uh, the Jermaine Greer Award for calling out um, misogynistic pigs (laughs) because anytime I lost an argument to a man I would call them a misogynistic pig And most of the time it was because they were being a misogynistic pig. Um, I grew up in Western Sydney where there was quite a lot of misogyny, um, at least in an internalised misogyny in in my realm. I think I grew up in a family that was um, incredibly uh, closed off. Um, I have a very loving immediate family, but I am half Dutch. And so I grew up from a culture that is... Uh, very Catholic, uh, very strict. Um, my relatives are Dutch, British and Maltese and all hardcore Catholics. Um, and the other half of my family is um, incredibly repressed and there's uh, quite a lot of um, probably bottled up trauma uh, and then we just never really spoke about. Uh, so I also had a few instances in my early life where uh, – I was sexually assaulted when I was 17 and it took me quite a long time to reconcile that. And then uh, that was my first boyfriend and my second boyfriend was emotionally abusive. And I broke up with him in my first year of full-time drama school and Mm. that was around about the point where I'd started making work to do with the body. Um, I was very disconnected from my own body. Um, And so I was sort of interested in talking about this thing that I didn't feel that people were talking about. So I made this body of work, just small pieces when I was at drama school, where I'd build like, you know, giant penises that would explode on stage and I'd throw raw meat at girls in bikinis and make all kinds of shit. Um, When the work permitted it to. Not, you know, I wouldn't take Tom Stoppard and insert an orgy into it. Uh, but I sort of became known as someone who um, was quite interested in uh, wit and comedy and sexuality um, and talking about the darker side of things but also finding the comedy in things. I always thought it was weird that whenever I saw naked female bodies or sexualized female bodies that it was always in this sort of dark or erotic way and I was like, naked bodies are funny. Mm. Why, why is it that naked male bodies get to be funny and naked females don't get to be funny or to speak? Uh, And so when I finished drama school, I made a play about all of those things, partly as a sort of catharsis, as a way of opening up that conversation, but also because, you know, at drama school, I was tall and curvy. I had short hair. I was always playing somebody's mother or grandmother or some kind of creature or a man. And I didn't really know how to play anyone who was like me. And as a result, I didn't think I was going to get work because of how I looked, because I was so much taller and bigger than everyone else. And I'm not tall or big, but that goes to show what kind of demographic of people I was studying alongside. 
So it was sort of um, a very practical decision of like, well, I'm going to make work so people can uh, see who I am as an artist, but also I really needed to sort of start a dialogue about these things. Otherwise, I think I might have gone mad. And then it it was just lucky, I suppose, um, that my instinct that we weren't talking enough about these things was correct. Yeah, because there's been a a lot of um, change around that sort of thing in our kind of society uh, lately that I saw an article um, only yesterday about uh, gender neutral casting becoming the norm mm. um, across the board. And, you know, I was wondering about that because you um, cast what the butler saw last year um, with that kind of approach in mind, didn't you? Yeah, but again, well, not again. Um, I think a lot of the best decisions I've ever made artistically and in my life have been total accidents. Mm. Um, and that was one of them. Yeah. Well, I'm going to say accidents. I mean, it was coming from a practical place rather than a conscious aesthetic place. So um, when I was auditioning uh, What the Butler Saw, um, it, look, it's one of my favourite plays. Um, it has been for about a decade. Joe Orton is one of my top five favourite playwrights of all time and I just never thought I'd get to do that play. So going into auditions and going into the whole creative process, I really wanted to get it right. And by get it right, I mean I really wanted to illuminate what Orton was trying to do with that play. I wasn't interested in putting my own spin on it because it's such a good play, you don't have to. Yeah. It doesn't need reinvention. It's also not a play that's widely seen enough to require um, reinvention. It's a play that requires acquainting an audience with the text and going, hey, this is this guy's amazing. Yeah. So going into the auditions, I wanted to cast it as close to the play as possible. So I was looking for actors who looked like, sounded like and embodied those people. I saw about 65 people in three days and very, very quickly, about halfway through the first day, I went, oh, f- I'm just not going to find those people. Mm. Not for this production. Um I mean, it's a farce. It requires a certain amount of technical skill. Uh, It requires people who are okay with, you know, making really off-colour jokes. I mean, it's the most provocative farce that's ever been written. Um, And it requires people who are incredibly uh, sensitive uh, and incredibly intelligent. And that's a lot to demand of one person for a show, particularly in a context where people aren't being paid. And it's a part-time rehearsal process, so you cannot immerse the actors. So you're really asking a lot of people. And don't get me wrong, we have a fantastic base of actors and storytellers in this city, but I was looking for a very specific blend. And I thought, I'm just not going to find people who can do all of that and who also reasonably look like the character. Yeah. So halfway through, I started freaking out. I go, do I just cast it as all female? Do I just you know do I cast small children do I you know I just started freaking out and going I've got to solve it Um, because I just wasn't convinced that people were going to just magically walk through the door and so I went just cast six people who can embody the spirit of the character what they look like doesn't matter what gender doesn't matter how old they are doesn't none of that matters I mean I'd invited anyone of any sort of identity politic or polemic to come and audition but I just went it just cast who you want to cast because you think they're right for the role yeah and just off the aesthetics 
which was actually really interesting because we ended up flipping uh, two of the male roles being played by young boys and two of the male roles being played by young women. So two of those um, four were quite close to their character's age and two of them were not at all. And then the two male roles we cast, um, uh, the two remaining male roles who are kind of patriarchal figures, a doctor and a soldier, we cast a queer British Indian actor and a trans actor. Mm -hmm. Um, And I sort of looked at the six of them and I went, there is no other production in Sydney who would put these six actors together. It's such a weird combination of people. But it was exactly right for that play. And there was a queerness to it and a campness and a kind of silliness to watching, you know, this beautiful, curvy Greek 20-something girl with a Hitler moustache in a suit playing an old, privileged white man. There was something about that where I went, this is very Orton. I think this is the kind of thing where if he saw his play 50 years later in the 21st century in Australia, he'd be like, yep, that's the vibe. And to me, it was the only version in that context Um, of that production that made sense. Uh, So it was very... uh, I'm aware that it read as quite a radical choice to some people, but it was totally from a practical place of I'm not going to find the actors as written, so find the ones who can embody. Yeah. 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 And I think, (laughs) like, what else can you do, really, if you just got to make the best of the situation? Totally. And then it just happens to, you know, kind of fit with your kind of ideology I guess absolutely I think it's about I mean with that I say accidental and I say that from a place of I'd sat with the work for a really long time and so when you've sat with something for a while and things you get a spanner thrown in the works you can sort of just look around and by paying attention and observing what's happening in a situation you can sort of pull out the things that work It's like you suddenly very consciously focus your blinkers because you're like, I know what this work is and what it needs. And sometimes an idea will just be thrown up and you're like, that's it. That's the one. Mm. Happened to me the other day. I was rehearsing with some students doing um, another farce, a Mark Ravenhill adaptation of Moliere. And for ages I've been saying, okay, well, this character has a disguise. Um, We have no f***ing budget for this show. Uh, and I was like, okay, well, this character has a disguise. I think it should be something stupid like a hat, beanie, sunglasses, hoodies. That's kind of the world we're in. So, like, maybe if you're wearing a beanie and just pull it over your face. I don't know. So the actor came in and he was like, oh, I've only got this beanie. I don't know if it's going to work. And he pulled it down and it's a Darth Vader beanie. <laughs> so it has Darth Vader's face over, like, if you pull it down, it Darth yeah. Vader's face sits over his face. And I was like, that's hilarious. Can you put the hoodie on over that? And he did. And there's a piano in the room that's part of the set. And I was like, what happens if you just lean on the piano like you're Frank Sinatra? And we'd also been struggling with what the disguise of this character looks like because it's a 15-year-old who gets mistaken for a homeless man. But this actor was just really struggling to make decisions about what that looks like. And the minute I saw the Darth Vader beanie, I was like, wait, what if you do it as Darth Vader? And he did like a 15-year-old's impersonation of Darth Vader. And I was like, that's it. That's the solve. Mm. And it was hilarious. <laughs> so by being very specific and creating those parameters of like, okay, well, this is the language of the disguises. When someone makes an offer, you then have the ability, because you're sitting in the world of it, to just go, that works, that doesn't work. Yeah. So it's sort of like 
creating those parameters and really delving into the text. So then when offers arise, you can really pay attention and use that instinct. So yeah, I say accidents, but um, yeah, I think it comes from like tuning in to your intuition. Yeah. I think that's important. Yeah. Do you think there's anything, um, you know, that it's too far, that's too ridiculous for in that kind of situation? At what point do you go, or I don't know, do you have a second guess that sort of stuff, the Darth Vader face? All the time. Mm. All the time. I um, I do this thing which a friend, my best friend uh, works for Scottish Opera and just finished assisting uh, the British theatre director Katie Mitchell. And she said, you and Katie both do the same thing. And I was like, this is the best day of my life. Someone's just said I do the same <laughs> that Katie Mitchell does. But apparently we both do this thing where um, we'll often get up halfway through something and go, I'm very sorry. We're just going to have to change this moment because I gave you bad direction. I'm very sorry, but I've actually made a mistake and now I need to fix that. You're not doing anything wrong. It was just bad direction. Mm. And people, well, in Katie Mitchell's case, people will fall about all over her being like oh no of course you didn't and she's like no no I gave bad direction it's fine and now we're just going to find a different way of doing that moment yeah of course people just look at me like I'm mad when I say that but it's true I mean I in the same play with the Darth Vader mask I cut an entire sequence that I'd added in it because I was like this looks like it looks like I can't direct and it looks like I just chucked in a movement sequence halfway through the play which I did yeah we tried it it's terrible not your fault, my fault. Let's cut it so I'm not wasting your time by trying to fix it. Yeah. So I think paying attention is about looking for those moments of goldenness in your intuition. And then it's also about trying stuff, but also going the minute it doesn't work and the minute you know what the solution is, aka cutting it, changing it, looking at it from a different direction, just stand up and own it. Mm. I feel like so many times, particularly directors, are trying to like pretend they have all the answers and trying to fix everything. And sometimes it's like, no, no, you made a bad suggestion or you gave a bad note. Yeah. You need to acknowledge that. And that's why I think people that I've worked with have respected the work that I've made because I'll be like, that was shit. And it gives everyone else permission to be you know. And you don't want to create a vibe where actors or artists feel like they're being self-deprecating. It's not. But if there's a moment and everyone knows it and you acknowledge that and you acknowledge that it's your fault, then people go, oh, thank God, they're not me. Yeah. You know? I feel like that's good advice for real life as well. Totally. Mm. Just own up to your mistakes. Yeah, just, I you hate... know what? I did it badly. Sorry. Totally. Mm. I can't stand people who can't say sorry. Yeah. It's so important to be able to just go, that was shit. I've got a solution. Let's enact that. So much better. Yeah. And the trick to acknowledging bad direction is to have a solution or to invite a solution. Rather than just going, this is shit. Silence. That's a terrible vibe. You know, it's got to be proactive. Otherwise, it is just self-deprecating and it creates a neg- negative energy. Yeah. But yeah. I want to do a bit of um, brainstorming. Yeah, great. To like uh, larger societal issues. All right. And um, I'm just waving to the dog. I'm obsessed with this dog. Oh my God, the dog's waving at me. This is definitely going to be edited out, but I didn't give a shit. This dog's iconic. <laughs> Societal issues. Great. I want to know how we can like kind of fix the world with theatre. Mm-hmm. I feel like we're kind of getting there. We're kind of getting the, well, in like the Me Too sense of of 
fixing things. Um, but that's very like Hollywood celebrity kind of level. And I feel like the when we talked before about the gender neutral kind of casting and, and you know, fluid in the role mm-hmm. and like getting to the character and the, the mm. sense of who that is rather than worrying about the aesthetic and the, you know, the look of someone. Um, we need to figure out today, right now, in this mm-hmm. moment, some tangible steps that we can take to get people on board with that. And that's what I want you to do. Okay. So I think uh, one of the biggest problems theatre f- faces, uh, at least in this city, if not nationally, internationally, is that I'm not convinced that we're making theatre that people want to see. Yeah. So I think the big question is, as artists and as producers and as curators we're going into communities and i don't mean the notion of simply community-based theater yeah um i mean actually looking at what are the things that audiences are interested in seeing and also in terms of form what can we offer that the internet can't Mm -hmm. I do think in the age of streaming platforms, theatre has to offer something that um, technology can't. And that's not to say that theatre works without the assistance of technology. Of course it does. But I remember having this conversation with a very senior person in a company and saying, um, you know, like in the era of Netflix, like what is going to make someone leave their house and spend, you know, 30 to $300 on theatre, you know? And this person was like, oh, well, you know, theatre's been around for thousands of years. It will never die. Um, Cinema hasn't affected that. And I was like, well, I think that's a little bit naive because I'm not saying theatre's going to die, but I'm saying our audiences are dwindling. And I think what we're at risk of creating is this kind of circle jerk situation where the only people who go to the theatre are the people who make theatre. And I think that's problematic. I think that is starting to become a reality because, you know, when I go see something, I often see very familiar faces um totally and like people i only know as like a like i just i'm aware of them not Mm. like i know them personally or anything but yeah it does seem like it's too difficult for people to go and see theater and if we're not putting on something that they want to go and see why should they Totally. I think something like um, Sydney Festival's Copro with Belvoir and Co Curious, um, which was Counting and Cracking at Sydney Town Hall. I think that's a wonderful example. I also just did a production of the musical of American Psycho at the Hayes, which completely sold out and did really well critically and commercially. Um, They're two very different pieces of art, but that's the kind of art that Sydney audiences apparently want to leave the house for. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's sort of what we should be aspiring to do. Um, So I think that's really important. I think that's probably the biggest thing that's going to help theatre fix the world. I also think theatre should in some way, particularly in this day and age, give audiences an experience. I think the age in which theatre was simply behind a fourth wall and it's all very tidy and it's all very sort of neat three-act linear storytelling. I'm not saying that doesn't have a place, but I do think a diversification of form is really important. I think theatre, because it's live, irrespective of whether it's a well-made play or an immersive production, theatre has to give its audience an experience. Yeah. 
and thinking about it from the experience of the audience is key. If it doesn't have value for an audience, if it isn't meaningful and sensorially engaging for an audience, I don't think there's any point in putting it on. Yeah, because um, obviously it's different to watching, like binging Netflix at home. Um, mm. And without making use of that, you are not giving a different kind of experience. So when you, you mentioned Counting and Cracking and uh, American Psycho, mm. what do you think made them so successful? I think um, with Counting and Cracking... Uh, the use of a beautiful space like Sydney Town Hall um, is really exciting for an audience. It's a wonderful space to watch theatre in. There's a theatricality to the space, though it is not a theatre space. I think that's really exciting. I think you can't get away from the fact that it's obviously an epic about four generations of Sri Lankan families, yeah. and that is exciting. And that is not work that just appeals to... Um, anyone who identifies with the West Asian community, that's exciting for anyone to go and see because that's not a story that's being told on our stages. And theatre, sh we shouldn't be going to theatre just to see stories that we understand and we culturally connect with. We should be going because we're like, oh, that's an interesting story or that's yeah. an interesting experience. Uh, in the case of American Psycho, I mean, commercially it's got a huge cult following. The novel's a massive sort of icon of postmodern literature. The film is incredibly camp, has a huge cult following. And the musical was a flop on Broadway. Yeah. Um, so I think there was kind of the combination of those factors of it being critically acclaimed novel, camp cult classic film and a commercial flop in music theatre on Broadway, there's sort of a perverse connection between the three of people going, well, how would this work as a musical? But also it's such a great story. But also I loved Christian Bale. Yeah. And there's sort of a co-mingling of those elements that's exciting. Um, Alex Balaj's direction and the design that Isabel and Mason came up with was obviously an extraordinary part of that. I mean, how often you get to see a musical on a mirrored three-part revolve that virtually never stops moving for two and a half hours and seeing an actor like Ben Gerard in the title role. All of that's incredibly exciting and appealing. Um, so, I, But I think that the difference between the two goes to show that there is no one right way of doing theatre as long as you're making theatre for somebody other than yourself. And I think there's a lot, particularly in the independent sector, I sometimes feel that a lot of the time people are making theatre as an audition to get more work. Yeah. Or that there's a sense of making it because we want to. And I actually don't think that's a good enough reason to make art. I yeah. think it has to have value for a community of people beyond you and your mum and your mates who might want to see it. Yeah. And going a bit further on that, how do we then normalise it for for people to go, oh, yeah, I think I might go and see some theatre tonight, just spontaneously, like mm -hmm. why not kind of thing? That's a massive cultural question. Um, I have to say in London that is the case, where you'll go to the theatre on a Friday night or mm. on a weeknight and you'll see people who've clearly come from their white-collar job chugging down pints um, at the theatre. I do think in Sydney, well, in Australia particularly, a big part of it is the weather. Um, it's really hard to, I think, to get people to want to spend a lot of time indoors when we have such a beautiful 
um, culture of the outdoors. Mm -hmm. A lot of the best things to do in Australia tend to be outdoors. I'm making massive generalizations, obviously. Mm. Uh, But I do wonder if there's a way that we can use the natural landscapes and we can use the environments of this city to create theatre. So I'm sort of interested going forward in... um, uh, There's a artist I was inspired a lot by when I was working in the UK called Janet Cardiff who does audio walks and there is a playwright and theatre practitioner Caleb Lewis um, who does a lot of these as well I don't know if he calls them audio walks but essentially it's theatre that you can download to a smart device and you follow a map or you follow a trajectory through a landscape and it's a piece of theatre that takes place in headphones okay Um, And so I do wonder if there is a market to sort of utilise a lot of the landscape and environments of this city in order to make theatre, which is also an issue, I think, of accessibility. I think a lot of people don't go to the theatre because of the price. And I sort of am interested in untangling the notion that theatre means that you go and sit in a dark room on a comfortable or uncomfortable chair after paying a certain amount of money. Mm I don't think that's the only way of creating theatre. And I think if theatre wants to thrive beyond merely survive in this city, I think that's an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of, um, like, similar to the headphone walk theatre, a lot of podcasts and people who do, like, say, for an example, a dramatic reading of erotic novels that were written by their dad or... um, a genuinely like genuinely quite good well-voiced um stories like uh mystery novels or or things mm. like that i i wonder if that's something we can do like a like a lead into here's the here's this this story that you can listen to and then invite to see it live or something like that and it doesn't necessarily have to i mean i'm quite interested in um, theatre that can take place in a supermarket. Mm. I mean, or as Peter Brook would say, the only requirements for theatre are a space, an audience and a performing body or bodies. Um, and I think we've become quite settled in and having a quite fixed idea of what those three things are. And I don't think they have to be. But I think there needs to be a relationship between those three things that isn't of the norm. But as long as there is a meaningful relationship between those three elements, I think there can be some really exciting work made. I'm nodding. We're all nodding. Yeah, I thought it was important. I don't, I don't know if podcasts have stage directions, but maybe they should. Maybe they should. Mm. She nods. The dog's snoozing. <laughs> the dog snoozes in every episode and we have to poke it to stay awake oh. so you can't hear the snoring. Oh, are you snoring? So do you think that the actor's job is then changing and it's becoming less visual and more of a focus should be on the story and the audience's, you know, reaction to that? And like you say before, um, people use theatre as a way to get more work for themselves rather than as a, as a, to tell a story to a, to a paying crowd. Mm, interesting. Um, I think the actor's job is becoming... Not perhaps less visual, but it's definitely um, becoming more demanding in terms of the diversification of skills that actors require. Um, I mean, historically, in the uh, historically, actors have always needed a certain amount of physical and vocal and um, 
uh, psychophysical skills. Um, obviously, with the advent of cinema and radio, there needed to be the ability to traverse different forms, and really that was about the scale of the actor's performance. I think in the 21st century, it's about the actor being able to cope and flourish within multiple forms. Um, I feel that actors are also being asked to bring much more sort of intellectual rigour to their work um, and being asked to bring a lot more of themselves to the work. There's certainly a reflection um, casting more so in cinema recently, but this idea of casting non-actors within work, this idea that the authentic human can be um, as interesting as a trained performing body. Um, that's not necessarily something I advocate in my work, but certainly I work with actors of all different kinds of trainings and yeah. experiences. I'm not interested in one particular model. Um, but that said, I think there's been a battering down recently where um, I think the difficult thing for actors, uh, for all artists, but very much so actors, is this idea of nepotism, this idea that um, no matter where you train, unless you train with the right people at the right time, that's going to be the thing that gets you the job. Um, and so I do think there is a... I suppose what I'm trying to say is that I think in the 21st century, the biggest challenge for actors is how to be an artist and an entrepreneur. Mm. Uh, this idea of marketing and this idea of self-branding and this idea of self-promotion is taking up a huge amount of time and um, uh, well-being, I think. And it, perhaps it's idealistic, and I do live not in the 21st century, um, as we all know. But uh, I was reading an interview that Jerry Seinfeld did and he was asked why Seinfeld, he thought Seinfeld was so successful. You know, it was a sitcom about four quirky New Yorkers and it ran for a decade yeah. against all odds. Uh, and he said that he and Larry David, um, when they first started out, he said most of the time with a writer or any kind of person in the entertainment industries or the arts, they will spend 50% of their time doing the work and 50% of the time promoting the work or administrating the work. And so he said, when Larry and I started writing Seinfeld and throughout the 10 years that they were writing those episodes, they spent 99% of the time locked away in a room writing comedy. Mm -hmm. And I, it is idealistic to say in the 21st century, because obviously we're shifting into a neoliberalist entrepreneurial mindset more than ever. But I do think there is something to be said about just getting on with doing the work. Um, that doesn't always work to my advantage personally. Um, I am uh, quite shy. I'm not very good at traditional forms of networking, but the best kind of networking I do is turning up and doing my job and my colleagues noticing. And that's sort of the entrepreneurship that I'm interested in, is how do I do the work better? Yeah. Um, and I do think actors need to be mindful of that because they're in the most vulnerable position artistically and economically they are the nexus of the live performance but they're also the person who often gets the least say they're at the whims of everyone else in the casting process and I do think it's empowering for them to hold on to this idea that your craft as an actor is more important than what you put on Instagram it has to be surely it has to be yeah I mean I use Instagram personally but it's more for me it's more mm. for me to kind of 
keep myself accountable and say, oh, you know, you haven't put anything up in a while. Is that because you haven't done anything or because mm-hmm. you haven't um, just been remembering? And it's more there for me to be like, oh, yeah, that's that's what I've, you know, everything I've done this year. Um, and that's how I kind of like to think of it. And if people want to be involved in that and are interested, they're welcome to. But, um, yeah, it's mainly for me. And I feel like possibly that's not helpful for the entrepreneurial kind of getting noticed and that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, it's I'm happy with it. So what's totally. the issue? And don't get me wrong. Like I think as someone who has worked as a producer, as a social media manager, someone who teaches entertainment management, um, I do totally believe in administration and producing and marketing and budgeting and all of those necessary skills that support and facilitate the distribution of art they're totally essential but when that becomes 70% of the priority and the actual art becomes 30% and I'm using an arbitrary ratio but I do think that is a problem there is no point in having a meticulously curated presence on the internet if there's nothing of substance behind it. Yeah. And I do think it's important to get that ratio right. And it's different for everyone. Mine's probably 95.5. And that's probably why my career moves so slowly. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's about being honest with yourself and knowing what you can cope with and what is important to you. And obviously it depends on what your job is. Um, Some roles do require you to be more entrepreneurial than others. I have the luxury of working in opera, which is quite a niche field and not many people want to work within it necessarily. Um, So maybe I'm speaking from a position of luxury, but um, I do think it's important just to have a sense of why you do what you do and to do it with authenticity. And people can sense that. Totally. An audience, followers, um, they they can definitely tell. Totally. I deleted my Facebook maybe nine months ago and people are like, ah, oh, but what about work? I have had more work flood in mm. since I deleted it. Nobody actually gave a about what was on there. Like my work is not represented on that platform. Yeah. I know inevitably I'll have to get back on social media, but I'm just going to pay somebody else to do it. Because for me, I was like, I can run these accounts without actually being on them. I'll write the strategy. I'll create the content. Do I actually want to log in and look at this? No. No, because I don't care, but because I'm like, I have I need to be doing. Yeah. I have plays to read and to think about and design meetings to have. Like, I don't, like, this gets one hour of my week and the art gets like 60 hours of my week, Mm -hmm. you know? And that's what works for me. Well, thanks for coming on, Danielle. Um, I think we're going to wrap it up there. Um, Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been great. Um, This has been the Indie Setup. My name's Sean. See you next time. Well, not really see you. You'll hear me. I won't see you at all. <laughs>